Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Austin McCormick here, and I have the privilege of talking with you today with two of my co-hosts, Dewey Doval and Jimmy Johnson, and we welcome back our brother Ryan Pendergraft to the podcast, and we are in our series on the Doctrines of Grace. This is our third episode in this mini-series. The first episode was an introduction to the Doctrines of Grace. The first, or the second one, excuse me, was on unconditional election. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about limited atonement. So, to kick off our conversation, I'll uh, ask Ryan, can you define limited atonement and also tell our audience uh, what are some other synonymous names for the doctrine of limited atonement? So kick off our conversation, brother. A limited atonement is simply the view that Christ died only for the elect. Or a lot of the times whenever I'm preaching, I will say that Christ died uh, for those whom he came to save. Uh, and that's typically the definition that, that I give, uh, that everybody seems to to not be a lot of resistance against uh, peculiar redemption or particular redemption, rather. Uh, particular atonement is uh, some synonymous terms that that are used for instance i think even rc sproul in his book chosen by god prefers particular redemption rather than limited atonement because we're not saying that the atonement of christ that his work or anything that he has done on the cross lacks any efficacy there's we're not devaluing uh what jesus has done on behalf of paying the the price for sins, what we're asking is for whom did Christ die? To whom is that blood um, given? And so throughout history, I guess that there are probably three common views. Uh, One is is the reform view that I've just highlighted. The other two is uh, universalism would be one, that God sent Jesus to redeem everybody and everybody will be saved in the end the second view is that god sent jesus to redeem everyone who would believe and take advantage of christ's work most typically your arminians are the ones who subscribe to this view who believe that death that christ's death was potential but not an actual atonement was made and so the reform view comes in and says that Christ didn't just die for the, the possibilities. He didn't just die for those who might potentially be saved. He died actually for those whom the Father has elected before the foundations of the world. And the only thing that I would just simply add is where we find it at in the second London Baptist confession of faith. And that is on chapter or chapter eight of Christ, the mediator paragraph five, it says 
the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of God, procured reconciliation, and pure purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given unto him. And the confession on that last portion is simply quoting John 17 too, talking about how Jesus has the right to give eternal life to those whom the Father has given him. Right. So, yeah, I go ahead, Dewey. Oh, I thought we were segueing into the next question. Go ahead, yeah. Brian. No, no, I'm. That's that's what I was going to do. So, perfect. Go ahead and ask. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, that was a really helpful introduction, just in defining uh, limited atonement, both um, just the perspectives on the atonement, and of course the way that we view this doctrine from a um, reformed or particular Baptist perspective. But regarding this next question, and, and it kind of really dovetails into some objections to this um, doctrine, which we'll discuss later on in today's um, episode. But where would you go to define or defend the doctrine of limited atonement biblically? Because in my interactions with people who don't necessarily adhere to limited atonement, there's a lot of talks and even in debates on it that you'd see in like James White uh, debating Calvinism or Arminianism. You'll hear the Arminian say, this is a more philosophical doctrine. This really isn't something rooted in scripture. How would you respond just biblically to show that this really is taught in the word of God? It's not something that's merely philosophical or speculative. Right. That's a good question. Um, Cause I deal with that as well. And, and again, I think that the, the foundation, the premise that we have to establish is we're, we're answering the question again as to the effects of the atonement. Who did Christ die for? We're not, again, trying to do to depreciate the value of the sacrifice of Christ, which I think that a lot of Arminians, whenever you talk about limited atonement, when you talk about particular redemption, their focus isn't so much, in in my case, isn't so much uh, Christ dying for only the elect, but they, they take it as you're saying that the blood of Christ or that the work of Christ is not sufficient for everybody. And that's, of course, not what we're saying. We're talking about the efficiency of uh, of the death, the atonement for the elect. And so I go to the gospels a lot of the time. Uh, for instance, you know, Jesus talks about uh, what is this? John 15, I believe where he says, you know, to his disciples, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Uh, then you also in the gospel of John is, is Christ desc- describes himself as a good shepherd, as one who lays down his life, for the sheep, and if you you just kind of follow that in uh, in the direction that it's going to its ultimate end, because Jesus goes on to say that my sheep they hear my voice and they follow me, and so just like I would point to Romans eight twenty eight, that those who God foreknew He also did predestine to become conformed into the image of His Son. There is a there's a track that you once you're on it you can't get off of it, and so. It's Christ died for his sheep. His sheep will hear his voice. 
his sheep will follow him. And therefore, if you, if you work that backwards, those who don't follow Christ, those who don't hear his voice, can't be those that Christ has not died. Uh, John 17, uh, Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays for uh, those who would be future disciples. But he never once does he pray for the unsaved world. He prays particularly for those the Father has given him in the twelve, and then he prays for those who will come after them. And then another verse that we looked at last time is in Acts 13, whenever the Gentiles heard the word of the Lord, it says that as many as were appointed to eternal life, they rejoiced and they believed. And, uh, you know, I can go to Acts 18, where, where Paul, he's, uh, he's having worries and concerns about entering into Corinth. And Jesus comes to him in a dream, and he says, Paul, you have no need to be afraid, uh, for I have many people in this city. And the context is, Paul, you can go into Corinth, and you can go in uh, courageously, you can go in confidently, knowing that I will have people in this city for whom I have died, whom I have atoned for their sins. You can preach the gospel to them, and they will believe. I go here recently, just this last Easter, um, I preached from Revelation chapter 5, where we have that, that beautiful scene of, of heaven's throne room being opened in Revelation 4. God, John sees the sovereign God who sits on the throne, and beneath is this transparent glass. And, and then he comes into chapter 5, and of course there's a scroll that needs to be opened for the history of the world to be unraveled. And for John, this, this of course, means uh, vindication for the, the saints of God. It means judgment for those who oppose the church. But, of course, the problem is, is that this, the scroll is sealed with seven seals, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is found worthy to open the scroll or to break its seals. And so John begins to weep. And, of course, that's whenever an elder comes to John and says, stop weeping. Uh, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the, the root of David, he is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. And John turns and he looks and he sees a lamb. And that is the, the image that John uses all throughout the rest of Revelation. This lamb who was slain. And who was he slain for? Well, if you follow it on to, I think it's in verse 14, where we have the these angels and the saints of God who are proclaiming praise and honor and glory to the Lamb because he has ransomed a people to God from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. And so Christ is ransoming a people. He is redeeming a people for God. So as we've, I think it was maybe a couple podcasts ago, maybe it was the last one, where we went to Ephesians chapter 1, and we've seen that it was the Father's plan from before the foundations of the world to, if you were, reward his son with an elect people for the sacrifice that he has made. In fact, I think it is even in, uh, and I may be wrong, Jimmy, you might have to uh, jump in there and help me, but for the we are saved for the sake of Christ we are saved as a i guess i would say as a and a reward from God the Father for God the Son's obedience 
for sacrificing his life in order that we might be redeemed. And so I, I see just a very logical progression is that the Father has chosen a specific people, just as we see even in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel and the blood sacrifices that were made there. Uh, and in the New Testament, we see that God has chosen a particular people. And for those people, Christ has died. And it's for those people, he comes again at the end of the age. I only have a few comments to add. Um, the accusation that limited atonement, particular redemption, whatever we're going to call it, is merely a, a philosophical doctrine is somewhat of a wrong-headed objection in the first place. Um, because just because a doctrine is logically derived from another clear teaching of Scripture does not mean that doctrine is any less biblical than that doctrine from which it's derived. Now, that being said, there are Scriptures, as as Ryan alluded to and, and quoted earlier, that teach this. And there, there are some additional ones that I think seem to suggest it, such as Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil of the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes, makes intercession for the transgressors. This idea that Jesus, prior to his coming, as Isaiah prophesies, he, he's come to save a particular people a people who the Father willed for him to save. Another text that I believe James White actually alludes to quite often comes after the golden chain of redemption in Romans chapter 8, verses 31, 32, and we'll go ahead and read 33. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If it is God, or if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now notice there, the us, Paul equates with the elect. It is God the Son was not spared, but was gave up for us all. And who is the us all? It is those who are elect. And who are the elect? It's those who the golden chain talks about in the preceding verses. So that would be an additional biblical text. And I do want to encourage our, our audience and our listeners to go read the second head of doctrine in the canons of Dort itself. Um, rather than getting a caricature of, of the position of limited atonement, go, go to the confessional document in which it's outlined in the most clear and, and vivid way. And I mean, it's six, it's the second head of doctrine, and there are eight art, nine articles on it. And then it, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven seven responses to various errors as it relates to the doctrine of the atonement. And we don't have time to parse out each and every one of those, but this doctrine wasn't a doctrine that was just made up of by philosophical speculation, but rather is grounded in sound reason. If, if God did elect a people, 
unto salvation, it would make sense that the son in his atonement makes satisfaction for them. Um, however, we, we do want to acknowledge that there is some diversity even in with, within Reformed thought about exactly how that itself works out in, in the atonement of Christ. But the point is that Jesus effectually saves some. Like that's a non-negotiable re- Reformed point. Um, that he actually effectually saves some through his atoning sacrifice. Now, the merits of his atonement, some will dispute whether or not they they could potentially or hypothetically save all men, um, and or there are those that just simply say it could only save the elect. Um, but just for our, our subject here, we, we are essentially just saying that at the end of the day, Jesus has come and saved a people. And, and that people has a number, and those people will indeed all be redeemed. Hmm. And I think that uh, if I could cut in just one more thing, just like the, the three of you, we've, we've all had our ups and downs with the doctrines of grace, maybe personally or pastorally. You know, I, I remember just struggling through it myself and you know i kind of had to grip my teeth and some parts of it because you know i i was raised um very arminian as i've said before and and to come to this was i don't know in, in one sense it was very uh much a blessing and in another sense, I kind of <laughs> come kicking and screaming along the way as well. But in one of the discussions that I've had recently with a gentleman uh, from my church who ended up not staying because of this doctrine, or be, well, this is one of the reasons, I, I bring up the legal ramifications of the atonement of Christ that we are justified. That is a a legal term. We are made right with God, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, uh, became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so the point that I like to make whenever talking about limited atonement is that if Christ truly bore the wrath for every single person that every that ever lived on the face of the earth. And those people, some of which would not believe, would then be sent to hell to endure the wrath of God. God then would be pouring out his wrath a second time, which would make the first time unfair to his son. Because he's poured out his wrath once. So did the question then becomes, did Christ suffer unjustly at the hands of the Father for those that would not believe? And so I, I, I like the legal argument, and that's probably the one that was more convincing to me than anything, is that if I'm going to have to pay for sins for rejecting Christ, which unbelief would be a sin that would be covered under the atonement, correct? Well, if if that person is paying a second time, as it were, 
then Christ died unjustly for those who will not believe. But rather, since the wrath of God was poured out upon his son for those who would be saved, God is just in doing so. Jimmy, you got something before we move on? Okay. Well, um, in, in Jimmy's last response there, he, he gave us a helpful observation in the demonstration of this doctrine biblically that the word many is used oftentimes in scripture uh, to present this doctrine that we're defining limited atonement that Christ came to effectually save many. For instance, Mark 10 45 says, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. That theme is in a lot of places in scripture, but um, we want to transition now to objections. We, we might point out scriptures like this, that uh, the son of man came to save many, but maybe someone who disagrees with us or maybe someone that doesn't completely understand may respond with something like, but John 3.16 says that God so loved the world. Maybe that's an objection that you've heard if you're uh, very familiar with this argument. So we want to take up objections like that, or uh, you can start with whatever objection you had planned, Ryan. But uh, what are some uh, objections to the doctrine of limited atonement or particular redemption, and how do you respond to them? Yeah, I, I think that the, you know, Christ died for everyone without exception argument is the one that I hear the most, um, which, of course, I, I don't adhere to, at least anymore. And a lot of people will, will point to the the alls in Scripture, you know, what? But all, as we've, as you've already pointed out, you know, we took up the Lord's Supper yesterday in Matthew twenty six twenty six, where Jesus says, that, you know, this, this blood of the covenant is poured out for many for the, you know, forgiveness of sins. But yet yeah, in other places where we do see the word all, it doesn't always mean all encompassing. And Jimmy pointed that out in the text that he read from Romans 8, uh, 31 is that all doesn't always mean every single person. For instance, uh, Jesus tells his disciples that they will be hated by all people. Well, obviously, the, not every single person that ever lived on the face of the earth hated the disciples. So all doesn't mean everybody. Uh, Romans chapter 5, we have all who are in Adam die as a result of sin because we by our nature, are born in Adam. And then it says that all who are in Christ are made righteous. Well, who is the all? Well, we have the all in Adam distinction. Then we have the all in Christ. And of course, the all in Christ are those who who believe. And so those are the, the most common objections is that the Bible says that Christ died for everyone. Well, the Bible doesn't say that Christ died for everyone that we have to look at the context of how everyone and all and many are being used to correctly uh, figure out who Christ has died for. And, and I think that, you know, going back to John three sixteen, that for God so loved the world, we, we like it as a, you know, God loved the world so, so much that he, you know, had to give his son to die on the cross uh, to make a ransom for sin. But I think that the better translation of that verse is this is how God loved the world. It isn't so much talking about the 
the scope of God's love as it is the way in which he has loved. And how has he loved the world? Well, he's given his son to die on the cross for those who will believe. And again, that would be the second part. Is it everyone, whosoever believes? And then we ask the question, well, who are the whosoever's? Well, whoever has faith. And I have no problem standing behind the pulpit on a Sunday morning and saying, if you want to, to place your faith in Christ, I promise you that as soon as you do, he'll save you. You don't have to worry about if you're elect or not. If you want to be saved, be forgiven of your sin, then God has promised through his son that if you repent and believe, you will be saved. And then you become the, the whosoever of that verse. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would agree with that. I think John three sixteen is kind of a a moot point in in the actual debate because John defines who the all are. Um, it doesn't just say all stop, and then it it actually defines who the all are. It's all who believe. It's all the believing ones are are those who who are saved and who do not perish but have eternal life. And when it says, for God so loved the world, I mean, as we talked with Sam Waldron about a long time ago about um, God's love and and the free offer of the gospel, um, God can have a, a love of benevolence for all of his creation um, and desire the good and the welfare of them while also not decreeing that every single soul um, should be saved. Um, because I, I think even the Arminian would have to deal with the issue <laughs> and just as much as we would that, that God does love the whole world, and yet at the end of the day, there are some that's not, that are not going to be saved. <laughs> I mean, they still have to deal with that problem. And as well as they, they also have to deal with the same problem problem and I don't know if it's really a problem but the god that the armenian claims to believe in and is a god who would be able to save the whole world <laughs> like he still has the capacity to do it and he's choosing not to um so I think many of these objections the objector actually fails to to elude the objection that they are making um, and I, I think it's fair to point that out, but I think Ryan's response is, is the most fitting biblical response. It's like John three sixteen. It, it tells us those who are saved are those who believe. And it's like no Calvin, there might be a Calvinist somewhere, but most Calvinists that I know have no trouble calling upon their listeners to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and even issue this exhortation that if you do come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, he will save you. If you do seek him, you will find him. He will not cast you out. And and I don't believe believing in limited atonement or unconditional election or any of the doctrines of grace require us to cease from using biblical languages or language with regard to the offer of the gospel or, or declaring God's love. Amen. You know, I loved what both of you guys said, uh, particularly, you know, Ryan, as you mentioned about how words need to be interpreted in their context. And for me personally, just uh, to be brief, anecdotally speaking, I, 
when I was struggling with this issue, John 3.16 was a verse that kept coming back to me. And um, Steve Lawson's actually done a series doctrines of grace with Ligonier. And in one of those episodes, he showed how the word for world in the New Testament is used in 10 different ways. And he went through the ways just in the gospel of John. And I, for me, that was a huge deal. Just recognizing just because a word is being used that that doesn't just settle the debate. You have to look at the word in its context. You have to look at how the words used throughout the totality of scripture, particularly when uh, referring to um, the subject at hand, namely in, in this context, the the nature and extent of the atonement. So I really like what you said about that, Ryan and Jimmy, of course, just recognizing that um, Jesus is a perfect savior. And um, Ryan, you also alluded to that as well. And uh, there's great comfort in recognizing that that Christ perfectly atoned for the sins of those whom he came to save. And that really gets us into the devotional aspects of this doctrine of limited atonement. Um, and I'd love to hear from both of you as pastors, especially, how have you shown other people in your congregation or those in your life the practical and devotional applications of the doctrine of limited atonement? I, uh, for, for me, it's, you know, pastorally, um, you know, I can give great encouragement uh, to those who are trying to evangelize and, and trying to, to, to woo their, their loved ones to Christ. Uh, there's, there's a great confidence to be had in knowing uh, how effectual the atonement is and that the elect will be saved. I mean, there, there's not an option for one single elect to not be saved. I mean, that's not even on the table. And, and to me, that, that provides such a great comfort and, and encouragement. I know that maybe for some it would cause uh, anxiety. You know, are they elect or not? Well, then you just you, you leave it up to the, the sovereign God of the universe. Um, personally, for me, it's... Uh, very humbling. Um, I just even think about it is uh, pretty emotional. Uh, you know, I, there's a book that I that I often turn to is 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 the atonement necessary? And it, it's by a, a variety of authors. You know, I think Sinclair Ferguson's there, Alistair Begg, and and Sproul. Uh, but one of the things that, that they always point out is, you know, did Christ have to die? Was that the only way? And I think it's R.C. Sproul that points out that if there were any other way to atone for the sins of, of God's people, wouldn't you think that God would do something other than sending his son to die? And then, you know, especially now as, as a parent and uh thinking in lines of those contexts of, of how terrible my sin must be, how hideous it is and how offensive it is to a holy and righteous God that he would give for, for my sin, for my salvation, his one and only son. So it tells me, like I said, just uh, 
how terrible I am and, and how terrible my sin is. But then again, it tells me how much I'm loved by this God who sent me his son to die in my place. That, on, that the cross is, is, is my spot. I deserve that. Eternal wrath is something that I deserve and someone has come and, and taken my place. And, and not just so that my sins could be overlooked. It isn't that God just kind of does a, a sweeping pass and says, I'll, I'll grade you on the curve. <laughs> he doesn't do that. It's My sins have been completely atoned for, removed. And I have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the righteous one. And so for me, devotionally, I, I, I continually go back to what it cost to atone for my sin and how much love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit to apply redemption to my soul and to give me eternal life through Christ. And then pastorally, like I said earlier, it's such a great encouragement that I can give to others as they go out and evangelize and, and share the gospel with those that they love. The past two weeks, I've I've had the privilege to to preach on Christ atonement. I, I preached on Isaiah fifty two and fifty three last Sunday, and then this past Sunday, yesterday, for us as we are recording, I got to preach on Ephesians one verses seven through ten, and and I'd just like to read that passage. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And that first verse, it, it talks about how we, and the we, of course, you have to ask, who is the we? And, and it's those who, who the Father chose before the foundation of the world. It's those Christians and saints in Ephesus, as well as Paul, who is writing, and, and all who, who were chosen before the foundations of the world. It is for them that Christ has brought about redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of of sins, and one of the points that I tried to drive home yesterday, and I, I believe it was successful, is that that Jesus doesn't try to save people; he actually does it. <laughs> he actually saves people. We actually have redemption in Christ. It's not something that by my own strength or or by my own initiative that I have to take hold of um, in an active and aggressive manner. No, it is a redemption that Christ himself accomplished um, in spite of my sin and in spite of my, my not even wanting him as a savior initially. He died for me. He died for the ungodly, uh, whom the father chose. Even, even while they were yet sinners, he, he died for them. And that, that is a very, very personally comforting thing to me to know that Christ has made full satisfaction of divine justice in my place. Because as Ryan said, we deserve 
condemnation. But because of what Jesus has done, we will never enter the courtroom as guilty persons. We will never enter God's court of justice as guilty persons, but we are justified in Christ. And, and we are now his beloved children. And, and I think the doctrine of adoption that nicely, nicely flows from, from the doctrine of justification as well. It's just, my, I think in all my ramblings here, basically just what I want to assert and encourage our listeners with a doctrine such as this is that Jesus has actually saved you. <laughs> if you are in Christ, he, he, he is actually saved you. Um, there may be some days where you do not live a Christ-like life, where you do not live in all wisdom and insight, as Paul alludes to in this passage that I just read. But even regardless of that, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in him, if you have rested in him for, for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, he did die for you. <laughs> and his death is effectual to save you. And, and it all comes from God's abounding grace. Um, so, I mean, just pastorally, when talking to the people in my church and those who I pastor, especially in those moments where they're, they're struggling, I remind them that Jesus died for them, that he actually accomplished atonement on their behalf that though they might bring God's fatherly displeasure, they are no longer an enemy of God and never will be again because Jesus has accomplished redemption for them. And, you know, I mean, I don't preach on limited atonement all the time or, or bring up that language. I, I usually am like Ryan. I say it in, in slightly different ways. Jesus died for all those who would believe. <laughs> like are things that I say, taking recourse back to the doctrine of election, because I do believe particular redemption has bad PR um, and, and limited atonement has bad PR and, and people are averse to it. And even me, I, I've, out of all the ones, uh, all the points, this is the one that has always given me the most pause. However, when you tie it to the doctrine of election, it all makes sense, as well as the doctrine of the effectual calling, which we will look at at another time. But my main encouragement is, if you are in Christ, he has redeemed you. He didn't try, he did it. And you have hope both today, tomorrow, the next day, and even in the face of death, because God the Son came and voluntarily died as your substitute. He did it for you. Don't forget it. And that shouldn't stir gratitude and promote obedience and all those things, but we, we always need to point people back to their effectual Savior. And he is a good savior. We've been considering some definitions for this doctrine of particular redemption or limited atonement. We have discussed some uh, objections after giving a biblical presentation of this doctrine. And now you've just heard these brothers uh, talk about the practical and devotional applications of this doctrine. But now we're curious to ask both of you, if someone wants to know more about 
this doctrine that we believe is derived directly from Scripture, what are some resources that you would recommend to them uh, to help them better understand the scriptural teaching? I think you've alluded to some already, but um, now this gives you a full opportunity to talk about some works that would help understand this doctrine. Uh, the, uh, the the book that I had mentioned earlier was was a good help, I, and I still go back, probably reference it every time to "Chosen by God" by R.C. Sproul. It's been a great help. The book on the atonement, uh, like I said, it has many authors, uh, just to name a few: J.I. Packer, James Boyce, R.C. Sproul, John Gerstner, Sinclair Ferguson. Alistair Begg all make their contributions uh, to this book answering the question for whom did Christ die? Was the atonement necessary? Things along those lines. Uh, And then there's also another book called The Nature of the Atonement, Four Views, and that also has multiple authors, Tom Schreiner being among them. And I'm sure that there are many other resources that are available to you. Uh, We've we've mentioned uh, James White's uh, is it the, the Potter's Freedom uh, would, would be another resource to consider. I just want to recommend some of the same ones that I recommended the last time. I, I believe that in the Reign of Grace by Abraham Booth, he has a chapter devoted to the atonement. Um, I believe that Andrew Fuller's The Gospel Worthy with All Without Acceptation um, is is another work that's worth consulting and and he's dealing mainly with what's called the modern question and the free offer of the gospel but he does get into the subject of the atonement and though there are times where i may not agree with some of the language that fuller uses um i think overall it's it's a helpful treatment to show how limited atonement relates to preaching the good news to the heathen or to the lost. Another work um, would be The Cause of God and Truth by John Gill. John Gill deals with every single one of the points. Um, and and he, he deals with the, all the difficult text that, that seem to contradict it. He deals with early church father quotations to show that it's not an invented doctrine, like a modern doctrine. He, he, he just he handles a lot of stuff in that book. It, it is a massive work that pertains to the doctrines of grace. And I really, really encourage for our Baptist listeners, especially to, to really go read John Gill, um, donate to the John Gill project that was, that was discussed at another time, and then go find a copy of the cause of God and truth and and pick up and read it if you're wanting to see a a very robust and a very biblical uh, or an attempt to be very biblical and utilize exegesis to prove the doctrine of the atonement other than that again i just encourage that people go and read the canons of dort <laughs> go and read them you can find them online translations of them online um you don't have to buy a volume to do it. Go and read them. It, this one is the second article or second head of doctrine. Uh, deals with the the nature of a, the atonement. There's been some more recent works um, dealing particularly with some of the views of the people that would have been at um, the Synod of Dort, like John Davenant and and his view of hypothetical universalism. Um, 
I have not read that book yet, but I think it's worth dealing with because he was there and and obviously he agreed with the synod of dort so i think that that provides some nuance um to to this head of doctrine as we deal with it and think through it and yeah so that would be some works off the top of my head well gentlemen i've thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today and um, i trust that our listeners have been richly blessed by your insights and all the encouragements you were able to provide on the doctrine of limited atonement or particular redemption before we wrap up today's conversation do any of you guys have any final thoughts you'd like to share pertaining to this doctrine there's been so many great insights shared already but if you have any final words to wrap up our time together today we'd love to hear those insights well, for me, it would just be, uh, you know, that Christ died uh, securing our justification, but he also died securing our holiness. And so that's, I guess, the, the other side of the coin, uh, of the same coin that we're talking about, is that, yes, we are justified, we are redeemed, we are forgiven, but we are also redeemed justified and forgiven to live a holy life, which gives evidence that we actually have been elect, called, converted, whatever you want to say. And so I think that that would be something that, that I would like to leave uh, with those who are listening is that if, if whenever we do doubt, whenever we do have times of discouragement or even times of, of, backsliding and, and falling into sin uh, is that if if we have been saved we can be confident in knowing that he who began a good work in us will see it to completion that christ not only purchased our redemption but he purchased our sanctification as well and uh you know t- to kind of leave you with a, a hymn by by an arminian who says no condemnation now i dread Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne, and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be, that thou, my God, should die for me? So, for an Arminian, that was pretty particular, that Christ died for me. Amen. Amen. The only other things that I would mention is if you are a pastor and you hold to the doctrines of grace and yet you find yourself in a church that does not, be very, very patient. Um, because as I think, I, I don't believe I can speak for every single one of us, but I think it would be true of most of us who are who are talking right now that coming to these convictions for each of us, though it looked different, it didn't just happen overnight. Like, like we wrestled with these things. And I think sometimes when, when we, we come to these things and they, be, they become convictional to us, there's the temptation to expect that everyone around us needs to hold to them immediately um, because we now hold to them. So, so everyone else around us needs to. Um, so I, I encourage the pastor who who holds to the doctrines of grace yet finds himself in a church that may not even be super hostile to them, but 
does not formally accept them or, or really know what they are, be really patient. Be willing to, to give deeper explanations. Be willing to, to deal with people caricaturing your position and, and patiently correct them and, and, and pray for them and preach the word. Um, don't, don't go up every Sunday and try and hammer the five points or, or hammer um, limited atonement. Preach the Bible. Um, and those doctrines, as we say, do come from the Bible, but you will gain the trust of your people when you are preaching text indiscriminately and not trying to push an agenda to, to make everyone a Calvinist in your congregation. Um, so that's one of my encouragements. Be really, really patient. Um, and be willing for to allow people to caricature caricature your position um, when when you do state it, and and just simply correct them with a a great spirit of humility and gentleness, and really listen to them because perhaps they aren't as far away from the doctrines of grace that you might think that they are. Um, try and word things differently, and and show them what you mean, and try and communicate with your people, and not merely talk at them. Um, is, is my, one of my major pastoral encouragements. And then I, I just echo what Ryan says. It's like the doctrine of Christ's atonement and, and redemption of us, it, it doesn't stop at giving us a clean slate. He, God's grace has abounded to us so much more than that, that it actually begins to transform us from one degree of glory to another, that it begins to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we go back to Reformed principles, one of the great motivations for obedience is gratitude. And because what we have said about Jesus is true, that he's actually died for the elect, those who have believed on Christ Jesus have every motivation to seek to be holy and honor him and to be humble with those that do not yet agree with them. So those would be my exhortations. Amen. It's been a joy to engage in another great discussion in our series on the doctrines of grace here at the covenant podcast to our listeners we hope you found today's episode helpful in thinking through the doctrine of limited atonement. And until next time, we wish you grace and peace. God bless. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.